John Suchet, it brings a great smile to my face to see you here for 20 questions with remotely, unfortunately. The reason I want to interview you for the podcast is because of your passion, your love for Beethoven. The fact you've already written seven books on him and are writing an eighth. Your love of classical music more generally, you are, of course, a Classic FM presenter. You were before that an ITN news anchor and journalist. So there is so much to talk about. Welcome to 20 Questions. Thank you, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Let's begin, if we may, with Beethoven. Yes. This eighth book is about the journey that you've been on with him, how he became such an important part of your life. Can yes. you just give us a soupçon of how this did come about? Why is he so key to you? Yes. I mean, Matt, it would be so lovely to be able to say that at some point many years ago, there was a blinding flash of light. I heard something by Beethoven and that was it. But it didn't really happen like that. Um, I've always been a classical music nut. And at school, at secondary school, as a teenager, it was pre-Beatles, pre-Rolling Stones. And my colleagues were into Rock Around the Clock and all, all, all that kind of stuff. Bill Haley and the Comets. And I was into Tchaikovsky at the time. Um, and from Tchaikovsky, I broadened out. And in fact, at school, I was quite a good musician. And I taught myself to play the trombone, which I still toot on occasionally. And I decided to to try to become a professional musician, to be a trombonist, to go to the Royal Academy of Music, blah, blah, blah. Life had other plans, as it tends to. And I went down a completely different route into journalism. But music has always been in the background of my life. It's been what I do when I'm not doing journalism, for instance. When I was a reporter for ITN, when then a newscaster for ITN, music was in the background. And Beethoven crept up on me in my early to mid-20s. I can't pinpoint a moment, but I do remember... Obviously, to begin with, knowing all the obvious angry stuff with his hair flying everywhere. Da, 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 dum. And then I discovered the slow, gentle, even romantic, slow movements. And I thought to myself, he does it all, this chap. He absolutely covers every emotion that I need to feel. But didn't he go deaf? Didn't he go stone deaf? So how on earth did he do that? And as I got more and more into the music, I wanted to know more and more about the life. And I just became, if you like, the absolute antithesis of what I was professionally. You'll know as a fellow journalist that we're often accused of of seeing the wood for the trees. I mean, I I would cover a, a revolution in a far off country in three minutes for news at 10. And people would say, oh, you can't get to the story if you if you take it that casually. But with Beethoven, I had the opposite approach. I soon wanted to know every detail I could about him. I wanted to know what he had for breakfast. If you say to me, what did he have for dinner on such and such a date? I'd probably be able to tell you. So the exact opposite of what I was doing professionally, as at the same time, I was finding that his music was answering every emotional need I had. So how did Beethoven write some of his greatest music, some of the greatest music ever composed when he was going deaf? Yeah, good good question. The short answer is it's impossible to say because it was 200 plus years ago and we can't ask him. But it's important to remember that he was not born deaf. He was born with normal hearing. And the first indication he gives us of any problem with his hearing is a letter that he wrote in 1801 when he was 30. And in it, he says, for the last three years, I've had a problem. Now, assuming that's mid-20s, late-20s, somewhere around then, by which time he was firmly established, as he had been from his his toddler years, as a pianist of extraordinary virtuosity. They'd never heard anyone play like him. He was better than Mozart, they were saying, in Vienna. And he moved from Bonn, his hometown, to Vienna at the age of just under 22. And he'd already composed and performed his first two piano concertos. He was about to embark on his first symphony. He'd composed numerous chamber works. So he knew what music sounded like. He knew how to write music and he knew he was possessed of an extraordinary genius. He was not modest to do that. So when the deafness began, 
he was still able to keep writing music. And I must tell you, when, um, when I first started reading up about this, I assumed that at the age of whatever, 26, 27, 28, um, he'd gone to bed one night with normal hearing uh, and woken up the next morning deaf. It, it can happen that way. My grandmother went to bed at the age of 29 and woke up in the middle in the night with dreadful ringing in her right ear and howling. And the next morning she was stone deaf in her right ear and it never came back. And my brothers and I as children, we always knew you need to sit on Nana's left hand side at meals and what have you so she can hear you. But with Beethoven, it was completely different. It was a long, slow, gradual process. So in the early years of it, he was able to continue composing because he knew how to. And the hearing loss was not too substantial at first. But then, of course, it became worse and worse and worse. And in his later years, his music, some of take the late quartets, becomes much more introspective, much more internal. He's he's almost telling us about the tragedy of his deafness. So he was able to long answer to your question, but he was able to continue to compose because he knew how to do that, even with slowly declining hearing. You mentioned that it was said at the time that he was better than Mozart. Do you think that Beethoven was greater than Mozart? Is it possible to compare? And if it is possible to compare, do you think Beethoven was and remains the greatest of them all? Better than who, Matt? Who's that other one you mentioned? <laughs> Never heard of him. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it, it's an argument that we could have over many bottles of wine deep into that. My wife, Nula, who's at the other end of this flat... Um, her late husband, James, and she and I met through dementia. My, my, I lost my first wife to dementia. She lost her first husband to dementia. Um, James was a complete Mozart nut. He dragged around all the sites in Vienna, the Mozart sites, and he was actually a television writer and director, and he had written a six-part series called The Family Mozart, and it was going into production in the, in the 90s when he became ill. So She's exchanged a Mozart nut for a Beethoven nut. Of course, I think that Beethoven is greater than Mozart. And the reason I think it is because Mozart's music, I, of course, is the most, nat he was the most naturally gifted composer who ever lived. The tunes flowed from him. And as Amadeus, the film, depicted quite correctly, the music, as Salieri said, seems to be put into his head by God. It flows into his arm, through his arm, down to his hands, into his pen, straight onto the paper, and it's perfect. And if you look at a Mozart uh, manuscript, an autographed manuscript, it's perfect. Look at a Beethoven manuscript, crossings out, tears in the paper, blotches. He struggled with every note. So he was not as naturally gifted as Mozart, but Mozart's music, how can I put this? Mozart's music washes over you, you sit back and you listen to his music and at the end, the world has been put to rights. He is perfection in music. And in that sense, there's no one to touch him. Beethoven breaks the rules in ways that even Mozart didn't do. I mean, I can list all the ways, I mean, obvious ways, like he begins a, a piano sonata with a massive chord, the pathetic piano sonata. That's not how you begin a piano sonata. You ease into it gently, like Mozart and Haydn did. Piano concerto number four starts with solo piano. No orchestra, just a turning phrase, no more than a dozen or more bars. Then the orchestra comes in. You don't start a piano concerto with solo piano. Beethoven did. So Beethoven broke the rules. And in my view, that's what keeps his music fresh and alive today and for generations to come. Because it doesn't matter how often you listen to him, I speak for myself, he still takes me by surprise. Mozart, I know what's coming and I bask in it. Beethoven, I know what's coming, and he still takes me by surprise. And if you go to a, a Beethoven concert in the hall, concert hall, and it's a good one, it, well, let me put it this way. If you go to a Mozart concert in a hall, at the end, you feel everything is right with the world. Blissful. If you go to a good Beethoven concert, at the end of it, your knuckles should be white. You've been taken on a roller coaster ride, but at the end, it's lifted you up and it's convinced you you're capable of anything because you have been inspired to climb Everest, metaphorically speaking. So, yes, to me, he is greater than Mozart. 
And to me, he is undoubtedly, indisputably the greatest who ever lived. My late grandfather, Peter Stadlein, he was a concert pianist and he felt that he thought, and I hope I'm not misremembering this, that although Beethoven famously only wrote one opera, Fidelio, that that was the greatest opera ever written. Is that something you can identify with? Most certainly I can. But Beethoven would probably be surprised to hear your grandfather or me say that because he struggled with that. Three versions. The first version was called Leonora and that flopped. The second version was still called Leonora. That actually succeeded, but Beethoven withdrew it. And only eight years later did it become Fidelia. So he struggled. He called it at one stage, my poor shipwrecked opera. And in fact, the plot of Fidelio is completely unrealistic. It's nonsense, but then most best opera plots are. It works on two levels. It's the triumph of freedom over oppression, because this man has been wrongly imprisoned for his political views. He's in the dungeon. He's starving to death. So and ultimately he is rescued and triumphed. So the, the, the triumph of freedom over oppression. But he's rescued by his wife, who gets a job at the prison to help the prison governor, uh, jailer, and she's disguised as a man. So the jailer thinks that this is a young man who's come to work for him. And what complicates matters is that his daughter falls in love with this young man, who's actually a female, and the wife of the prisoner. So it's complete nonsense. But it, she rescues him in the end by putting her life at risk in the dungeon. So it's not only a triumph of freedom over oppression, it's a triumph of true love, written by a man, composed by a man who never knew the meaning of true love because he never had, as far as we know, a successful romantic relationship, with, which makes it all the more extraordinary. So I'm with your granddad on that one, Matt, 100%. Every emotion, as long as you accept that the plot is a bit daft, but then, as I say, what opera plot isn't, the music, the, the sublime music, the, the triumph at the end, but also there's a quartet. It begins, the opera begins in a silly way with a domestic scene with the jailer's daughter and his helper who's trying to woo her. She doesn't want to know. And she's actually, it opens with her ironing. And that's in the strange direction. Marcelina, I think Marceline is ironing. And it's a silly little tune that, that she sings. But then when Leonora disguises for Delio comes in and we have the jailer and we have Marceline and we have Giacchino who's wooing her. There is a quartet of voices. And at that moment, the opera enters realms that are, you just have to listen to that quartet. Suddenly it's serious. And each voice is depicting a different emotion. And that, I remember the first time I heard that quartet, I just had to stop everything I was doing. And to this day, I mean, ask me my desert island, this, what have you, what have you. The quartet from Act One of Fidelio, and suddenly the opera is on a, I can't think of a transcendental level. It's, you're, 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 you're dealing with utter musical perfection. There is that great moment when the prisoners emerge into the light and yeah. the fusion of the music and the meaning of that experience for the prisoners. Yes, uh, the Prisoner's Chorus is a seminal moment. And I saw a production recently, I think it was during the Kosovan War in former Yugoslavia. So we're going back a few years, but um, it was a prison and they were dressed like Kosovans and they were scaling the walls and what have you. So it's relevant even today, but it was possibly that that sunk the first performance of the opera because just before the first the premiere of the first version of the opera, the French army occupied, marched into Vienna and occupied it. And all the Viennese fled behind their front doors and they didn't come out. His opera gets premiered at the Theater and de Wien, just outside what was the city wall, still there today with the same entrance gate. And the audience on the first night was 90% French officers in uniform. They see the prisoners coming out of the prison and yearning for daylight and yearning for freedom from political oppression. And then we've got the, the hero of the opera in his dungeon asking for justice. And the French soldiers who are occupying a foreign capital think this doesn't look very good, does it? And they shut the opera down because of all that. So and that's why the first 
version of it, which was too long anyway and a bit clunky. But that's this, the, the main reason why the first opera failed. Just, ex- version failed. just explain to us why Beethoven was being premiered in Vienna rather than in Berlin. There was never the possibility of that opera being premiered in Berlin. The Ninth Symphony was going to be premiered in Berlin. Is that what you're referring to? No, I'm just um, asking because he, he, unlike Mozart and Schubert, who were Austrian, yeah. Beethoven was German, wasn't he? Yes. So I'm just yes. wondering why yes, his work would be premiered in Vienna rather than his home country. Yes. The, the answer to that is that he moved to Vienna. Vienna was the capital city of music then. I mean, it, it began really with Mozart in, in the late 1700s when he moved permanently to Vienna. And, you know, if you look at all the great composers who followed um, who lived and worked in Vienna. So if you start with Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, Schumann, Mendelssohn, Brahms, Bruckner, Mahler, Wagner, Strauss, blah, blah, blah. Only two of those were actually born in Vienna. And that was Schubert and Strauss. All the others came to live and work in Vienna because Vienna was the capital city of music. Now, Beethoven had been to Berlin on tour as a young man, and it was in Berlin that he wrote three of his five cello sonatas, and he wrote them for the King of Prussia, who was a competent cellist. Uh, He couldn't play them, so he gave them to his house musician to play them. But there was never any question of Beethoven's music being premiered outside the capital city of music. It had the best orchestras, Vienna, and an abundance of theatres, not concert halls, because Concert halls didn't exist until much later. In fact, the first concert hall in Europe was Hanover Square in London, purpose-built for music. But in Vienna, a theatre would have a play on one night and it might have a concert on the next. But all his music was premiered in Vienna, all of it, with two exceptions. No, sorry, one exception, which was the Emperor Piano Concerto, was premiered, and I, I, it was either Dresden or Leipzig. And the reason for that was Beethoven's hearing had deteriorated to such an extent that he couldn't perform it himself. So that's the only one of his five piano concertos he didn't premiere himself in Vienna. So somebody else premiered it in either Leipzig or Dresden. Then it moved to Vienna where his pupil premiered it. He still couldn't. But then interestingly, since you raised the Berlin question, the Ninth Symphony, the choral, which came much later, um, in 1824, I won't, the, st- the story behind the premiere of it, in fact, I'm about to write a piece for the Daily Telegraph on the premiere of the ninth, because on May the 7th this year is the 200th anniversary of that premiere of Beethoven's ninth. And um, it was due to happen in Vienna. They offered Beethoven one theatre, he turned it down. They offered him another theatre, he turned it down. He objected to the leader of the orchestra. I mean, and and then the singers revolted. They said, we can't sing this, blah, blah, blah. And in the end, he said in desperation, right, I'm going to premiere it in Berlin. Sod you in Vienna, it's going to Berlin. And then the leading musicians in Vienna wrote him the most groveling letter imaginable. The great genius of your mind must stay in this city that you've adopted as your own, blah, blah, blah. And it did the trick. Yeah, he, he loved a bit of flattery. So it was premiered in Vienna after all. But um, none of his work, as far as I, apart from those three cello sonatas, uh, were ever premiered uh, and the emperor outside Vienna. So those cello sonatas were not just written in Berlin, but were premiered in Berlin, were they? Or well, outside, outside yes. Vienna? Yes, because, as I say, he he was on a tour, so he wasn't there long. And the the king of Prussia, whose name I've forgotten, probably a Friedrich, one of the Friedrichs, was a very capable amateur cellist. So Beethoven wrote three cello sonatas for him. They were too difficult. So his house cellist, who I think I think his name was Dupont, may have been a Frenchman, played them with Beethoven on the piano. So they were first performed in, in Berlin. I can't think of another. Oh, he when he yes, he was in Prague soon after he moved to Vienna. He he visited Prague and he wrote a, an aria there, not from an opera, but a standalone aria for a local soprano. And she sang. He accompanied her on piano. So you've got a few occasional small pieces 
that he wrote for the people where he was. But they're the only, no, none of the major stuff was ever premiered outside Vienna that I'm aware of. It might be interesting to listeners to learn from what you're saying that Beethoven was premiering his piano works himself. Was, yes. that, was that true of the piano concertos, the five piano concertos, as well as the sonatas? It's true of the first four, yes. He premiered, uh, his first public performance in Vienna was at the Burgtheater, which was the most snobby, built onto the Hofburg Palace, very snobby, state-controlled theatre. And he was asked to perform his first piano concerto at a concert in 1795 there. He had only been in Vienna for, uh, what, for less than three years, and everything would ride on this. If he could crack it there, he was made. And he did perform it. And there's a lovely story behind it, which is that his old Bond friend, Franz Wegeler, was in Vienna and he was now a qualified doctor. And Beethoven was suffering at the time from a dreadful attack of the runs, to put it politely. And Wegeler tells us in his memoir, poor old Beethoven, the poor old digestive system was playing up again. It had always plagued him. I gave him some some solution, probably a thick white solution to drink to try to improve things, but it didn't do much good. Plus, he was only allowed one rehearsal and it was two days before the concert. And he got into the rehearsal room to find that the piano was a semitone flat. So he had to transpose it up at sight, which is not easy. When the actual performance came, sadly, we have no record of how it went. You can imagine the tension he was under, not feeling well, not having properly rehearsed, but it must have been a triumph because he was asked to repeat it just a week or two, or two later. And his name was made. And that his first piano concerto, the one that he performed, is the one that we know as piano concerto number two because it was published later. But that was the one that he premiered. Then later in the year, he premiered Piano Concerto Number no. One, and then uh, a little bit later, Piano Concerto Number no. Three, and then Piano Concerto Number no. Four. And it was only the fifth, the Emperor Piano Concerto, in eighteen, I think it was eighteen twelve or eighteen thirteen, when he's now in his early forties and his hearing is he could no longer trust himself to hear the orchestra. So he premiered all the first four, and certainly the piano sonatas premiered them all until we get, get to the late period when he, he can't any longer hear himself properly. But he was able to keep going on the piano for much longer because they're solo pieces. So he could play them because he knew the notes. He didn't have to listen to any, any other in instruments. And famously, that fifth piano concerto, like the Ninth Symphony, there is a choral finale. Stay there, don't go anywhere. I'm just going to check this out. Hang on. Okay. If you're right, I need to go back to the drawing board. You're thinking of the choral fantasia. I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I had the Beethoven collection. I think the Alfred Brendel yeah. collection of Beethoven piano concertos growing up. I would revise for my A-levels while listening to them. And then there was this choral music towards the end. So it must have been another piece tagged on. Yes, it would be the choral fantasia, which right. was piano, chorus and soloists. And they and the, the, they only, the voices only come in at the end. I thought I had you there, John. <laughs> How could I have been so naive? <laughs> it's a wonderful fantasia, though, now that I know it's a fantasia. Yes, yes. And, and in fact, it, it's the piece that, you know, the famous concert of 1808, uh, the four-hour concert in a freezing hall in December, and they pleaded with him to drop the choral fantasia. He insisted on doing it, and it went off the rails. It was so chaotic. But it's Just... a great piece of music. My wife's favourite piece of Beethoven, but it's largely unknown. And there, it's the precursor of the ninth. He wrote it many years earlier. But the main theme of the choral fantasia is da 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 da. Whereas the ninth da 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 da. So it's always paled in comparison to the great ninth. Just to return to Mozart briefly, he was capable of the most extraordinary tunes. Beethoven yes. was also actually capable of wonderful melodies. Yes. Beethoven perhaps was the, well, I would say perhaps, you almost certainly say definitely, was the more intellectual composer. But what Beethoven was capable of doing was to fuse intellectuality 
with tunes, or certainly some pieces became very, very, not academic, but deeply intellectual. I'm thinking, for example, of the late string quartets. Now, these famously are not the easiest pieces of music to understand. I mean, if you're starting yeah. out in, in, in on a sort of voyage of discovery of classical yeah. music, you probably wouldn't start with the Beethoven late string quartets. Yeah. But they are magnificent. And I remember my dad going to a cycle of them at the Wigmore Hall, yeah. coming back and just saying how magnificent they were. Absolutely. Yes. But they, they require perhaps some effort. Yes, very much so. You've really got to, I mean, the best way to listen to a Beethoven late quartet, it, other than being in the concert hall, actually the concert hall, apart from the excitement of a live performance, is not the best place to hear uh, one of the late quartets. You need to sit in a darkened room, ideally with a glass of wine in your hand and headphones on so that it, it goes right into there. They are the last outpourings of a man who whose life on a personal level has been a disaster. I mean, he had so many problems, not least the dreadful court case that he took out against his sister-in-law for custody of his nephew, her son. And he upset all his close friends all through his life. The single problem that Beethoven had that was not of his own making was his deafness. Everything else was, or even his digestive problems which he suffered from all his life he would eat at odd hours he would eat in the middle of the night if he was hungry he'd go without food if he was working he never did what the doctors told him to do and at the end of his life these late quartets stand alone as the most in emotionally intense music ever composed and i think you've hit the nail on the head in comparison com in comparing them matt beethoven is more intense as I say, this, it makes you do this more intense than Mozart, but never lose sight of the fact that Beethoven admired Mozart's music enormously. In fact, his, he would perform Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 20 in Vienna. Of course, Mozart died one year before Beethoven moved for the last and final time to Vienna, but he would play Mozart's Piano Concertos, particularly in Number no. 20. And one of the things I found out for my, for, for my new book is that We've always thought, well, we've known, we've thought for 100 years since essential research by a German musicologist that when he was 16 and a quarter, the boy Beethoven traveled to Vienna, met Mozart, but after two weeks only in the capital, he received word from his father, urgent word, come back home immediately. Your mother is seriously ill. We think we might lose her. And he had to leave. And he was only in Vienna for two weeks, if only he'd been there longer, given that Mozart was there. We now know from more recent research, only in the last few years, he was actually there for something like three or four months. And for three months of those, Mozart was there as well. That Yet there is no word of them meeting or getting together other than one possible meeting, which was not widely reported. And then he, he did then go back to Bonn. By the time he came back again, never to return, Mozart was already dead. So he never studied with Mozart or took lessons with Mozart. And in a way, I think that's his salvation because he admired Mozart enormously. He was 15 years younger than Mozart. Would Mozart the perfectionist have smoothed the rough edges, rounded the corners? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Was Beethoven a child prodigy in the way that Mozart was? Very much so, and and thereby hangs a tale. Mozart's father, Leopold, was a very accomplished violinist in the court orchestra in Salzburg. Beethoven's grandfather was Kapellmeister, head of all music in Bonn. Sadly, he died when Beethoven was only three, but his father was a tenor at court, and he also gave violin and piano lessons privately. So Beethoven grew up in a music sort of musical household, and his father, just as Leopold, being a professional musician, recognised the talents of his son, so Johann van Beethoven recognised the talents of his, and he put him on stage in Cologne, to perform in front of an audience for the first time at the age of just seven. And in fact, in the announcement that he put in the paper, he said, my young son aged six. Now, a father doesn't get the age of his son wrong. The likelihood is 
that he was trying to make his son appear even more of a prodigy than he was to to invite comparisons with Mozart, maybe. And as a result, probably, uh, we know that Beethoven's birth certificate has not survived almost certainly destroyed by his dad. So no one could say, hang on a minute, he's not 67. And for all of Beethoven's adult life, well, until into his 40s, he thought he was one or possibly two years younger than he actually was. And that's all thanks to his father. But the answer to your question is yes, his talent was recognised from the earliest possible age. John, where do you get all this information, this knowledge about Beethoven from? Do you go to libraries? Do you do you travel to find things out? Yes, it, it all began back in the 90s when I decided to write about him. Um, I just started buying every book I could buy on him. This was before the internet came along. I went to Bonn and the house where he was born has been preserved. And right next to it is a research centre, which I was and have been for many years a member of. And then I discovered, believe it or not, and this is all going to be in my new book, the most important research centre into Beethoven's life and music is at, would you believe, San Jose State University in California, which is about, San Jose is about 10 or 20 miles south of San Francisco. And the reason is, it's a long story, but the, the reason is there was a real estate developer who only died recently in old age in San Jose. Actually, he wasn't there, but that's... An, anyway, he had this, as a young man, became passionate about Beethoven. I won't use the word obsessed. I hate that word. Passionate about Beethoven in a similar way to me. And he made it his life's ambition to touch something that Beethoven had touched. And he achieved it when he bought an original autograph letter and then he started collecting more and more. And then he had this huge collection of important material and endowed a Beethoven, American Beethoven Center at San Jose State University. And I'm a member, I've been a member of that for 30 years as well. So I got a lot of information from both those research sources. And then, of course, I have my own Beethoven website. Um, and when the Internet came along, there's a wealth of material even more. But most importantly, Matt, what I say to people is, if you want to find out about somebody's life, go to where they lived. So I have been to every location that Beethoven went to that is still there to be seen. And what you only learn by going there, I mean, for this latest book, I revisited two sites in Bonn. And only because my wife, Nula, was with me, only because she started speaking on, on both occasions to a local, and I was a bit embarrassed that she just walked up to them and started speaking. But on both occasions, it completely corrected my thinking. I was looking at entirely the wrong church in the first instance and entirely the wrong block of flats in the second instance. And I was going to place Beethoven in both of these until Nuna started talking to two locals and they said, no, 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 it's there, not there. <laughs> so you've got to go to where he lived. To say I have a soft spot for Schubert is to underdo it, I think. Yeah. I love Schubert and I think yeah. he's an extraordinary composer. Is he close for you, close to the same level as Beethoven? Well, Schubert is absolutely wonderful music and what a sad life and the can, can i tell you about the connection or non-connection between schubert and beethoven it's a fascinating story and i'm sure we'll learn more as the years go by but did schubert meet beethoven that's the question and the short answer is before you answer it i just yes. want to say you know when we think about schubert it doesn't get much better than the trout quintet anywhere yeah. in the history of classical music it's yeah. the most exquisite piece of music. Yeah. I mean, Schubert really was the real deal as well. Yes. And, and I think what makes the Trout so incredible is that he puts a double bass in it. People didn't put double basses in uh, quintets. And if you listen to his string quintet, the slow movement, da, 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 it's absolutely sublime. And he doubles up on the cello. The fifth instrument is a second cello. So he's he's creating a new sound. But have a listen to his octet. The Schubert octet is a direct homage to Beethoven's septet. Or is it the octet? Anyway, same key, same instruments, 
Same second movement, a clarinet solo dominates it. So it's total homage to Beethoven because Schubert hugely admired Beethoven. Now, Schubert was much younger than Beethoven. And in Vienna, he had his own circle of friends. They were playing the evening, the famous Schubertiard evenings. Um, and his friends would always say to him, you must go and see Beethoven. You must go and introduce yourself to Beethoven. And Schubert was enormously shy. And the only occasion we know where he actually followed that advice was he he had just written a new song. I, I don't know what the composition was, whether it was a song or a chamber piece or what. He, he plucked up his courage and he thought, right, I'm going to go and see Beethoven, who had an apartment at the top of a block in the Melkabastai, uh, which is still there to be seen today. A huge number of steps to climb up to it. And he had this and he was really nervous and he climbed the steps of this apartment block. And when he got to the top, he took a deep breath and he knocked on the door. And Beethoven's servant answered and said, I'm sorry, he's not here. And Schubert said, OK, fine, and left and never tried again. There, There is a legend that at one stage, at one time, they were both in the same cafe. Schubert was at one table and Beethoven was at another. And Schubert's friend said, look, there he is. Go and say hello. And she said, I can't, I just can't. And he didn't. So as far as we know, the two never met. But Beethoven knew Schubert's music and admired it. Oh, just to tell you one other thing, Matt, Schubert's deathbed wish. Schubert died, was it at the age of 30 or 31? His deathbed wish was to be buried alongside Beethoven. And he was in a little cemetery northwest of Vienna, which is today a public park with tennis courts and the two original gravestones are still there to be seen the two bodies were disinterred when it was closed down as a cemetery moved into the musicians quarter of the central feet off the main cemetery southeast of vienna and they lie alongside each other today there so his deathbed wish was granted we should pause for a moment just to contemplate it would take a lot more than a moment, but to reflect on the fact that, like Schubert, Mozart died, I think, in his early 30s. Beethoven, 35, 35 was it? Beethoven made it through to 57? 56 and three months. One can just only imagine what we have lost as a wealth of music had Schubert and Mozart lived to a comparable age. Because when we are, if we were to compare, if we are comparing them, if we are trying to find the greatest, you've made your decision, we have to bear in mind that Beethoven lived far longer than both of them. Yes, but not nearly as long as Haydn, who lived into his late 70s. So, but you're absolutely right. And and it's incredible to think that with a little bit of leeway of about, I think, five years, if, if you ignore the five-year gap, Mozart, Beethoven and Schubert were all alive at the same time, which is quite extraordinary. And what I like to say about Mozart, when I, I do talks about Mozart as well, is rather than mourn what we lost, we should be grateful he lived at all. And we should also not lose sight in our admiration of Beethoven for the transcendental, to use that word, qualities of some of the arias and the music in, in his operas. I mean, just they sort of could take you to heaven and back almost. Mozart. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, gosh. Think of that Shawshank Redemption film. Yes. Yes. And in oh, that, when oh. in the prison, and that, that yeah. Mozart aria or the Mozart duet yeah. it comes yeah. through on the loudspeaker. Yeah. yeah. What the power of that music, yeah. what it can do to human beings, what it can do to us, even in bleak circumstances. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll give you another very different example about Beethoven. We have, my Nula is Irish. She has a grandniece who is one year and 10 months old. So she's a little, little toddler. And Nula sent her a classic FM music book where you can touch something and music plays. And little girl's mum took a little video of uh, Shifra is her name. It's a lovely Irish, old Irish Gaelic name. Shifra sitting with this book and she touches it. You get a snatch of Mozart. You get a snatch of Vivaldi. You get a snatch of Strauss. And she's sitting there just, just like this, loving it. And suddenly you get da-da-da-dum. And she goes, oh, and she just comes alive with Beethoven. So it is extraordinary the power that this man has. <laughs> You mentioned earlier the quartet 
in Fidelio, Beethoven's yeah. single opera. Verdi wasn't bad at quartets, was yes. he? Yes, exactly. And I've always believed that the quartet in the final act of Rigoletto, where, you know, it, it's leading up to utter tragedy. It's the father of Rigoletto with his daughter and the, 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 the criminal Scarafucile, I think is his name, and his sister. And the father has come with his, with his daughter to ask this criminal to kill the duke who he knows is wooing his daughter. And in the end, he kills the daughter by mistake, blah, blah, blah. But outside, when they get together in the final scene, there is a quartet. It's one of the most beautiful quartets of voices in all Verdi. It is, a, in my view, a direct, directly inspired by the quartet in Fidelio. That's so interesting because when I mentioned Verdi and, and his capacity for a quartet, I think it was that one that I was yes. thinking of, but I didn't dare say it in case I'd misremembered it. It was actually from La Traviata, another no, one. No, no, it's, it's Rigoletto. Yeah, at the, I think the beginning of the final act. Um, and it was the subject of a wonderful stage play and film. I forget who wrote it now. Anyway, it was wonderful. I saw it on the West End stage. And then they made a film in, uh, of it with Billy Connolly in it, acting seriously. Um, and it's called Quartet. And they, it's set in a, a home for retired opera singers. And they all had sung together in this quartet many decades earlier at the height of their fame or what have you. And they're getting together in the home, in the care home for one final performance. If you haven't seen it, do look it up. Quartet is called. When you were out reporting in your previous incarnation as a... Yeah a reporter and a journalist and a presenter, did you take music with you? Did you, did, well, what would you have had? A Discman, a Walkman? How, how yes. did you consume your music? And did that help you when you were on difficult, challenging assignments? Very, very good question, Matt. Very good question, to which I have to give you this answer because it kicks off this new book, in fact. In 1984, I was on a ferry going from Limassol, it left Limassol in Cyprus, a royal, uh, sorry, no, just a ferry that left Limassol in Cyprus, heading towards Beirut at the height of the Lebanese Civil War. And it left at midnight. And I remember standing, I was the only passenger on board. There was a Danish businessman, but we didn't speak. We were the only passengers. And we both knew that what we were doing was absolutely mad. We were steaming towards the capital of a country embroiled in a civil war. I could see this red glow in the distance that we were heading towards. Any sane person would be coming in the opposite direction. I had in my anorak pocket my battered Walkman and one cassette tape. Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 3, The Eroica, played by the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Herbert von Karajan. And I remember blowing it into my head as I stood on the deck with the sea spray steaming towards war. And at the end of it, I played it again. And at the end of it, you kind of think, yes, get me there. I've got to get this story. I've got to do it. Mozart will calm you down. But Beethoven inspired me. And I became a reporter at ITN in 1976, which was roughly the time when the Walkman was invented. So for the first time, you really could carry your music in your pocket. So I always had Beethoven's Eroica with me wherever I went. It was and it remains and it always will be the single piece of Beethoven I need to listen to. I need to hear in some way or another almost every day of my life. It just inspires me every time I hear it. So, yes, I did carry my music with me. Remember, I wanted to be a musician, a professional musician. Unfortunately, didn't have the talent. Fortunately for the world of music, I changed my mind. But it's always been there for me. So I've always been able to carry my music with me. And then when I left, I, I retired from ITN when I hit 60, long time ago in 19, in 2004. And suddenly, a few years later, a second career appeared on classical music. I had published on Beethoven by then, and I got a phone call from the then head of Classic FM, Darren Henley. Would you like to come and, and do a stint on Classic FM? And I was with them doing a, a daily programme for over 10 years. I love listening to your morning programme. Oh, thank you. My wife said, what a wonderful voice you have when I told her that I was interviewing you. And it's true, you had such a, a reassuring voice, but a, 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 there's a warmth to it. Voices, of course, matter so much on the radio, but one felt, I think, part of your 
community in mm. listening to you those mornings. Can you tell us, John, where more broadly, where the courage came from in you that enabled you to report on some dangerous conflicts? Yeah, uh, courage. I, I, I would never, I've never thought of that word referring to me. Um, I don't, I, I always wanted to be a TV news reporter. When I was at university, I applied to the BBC. I applied to ITN. I applied to Reuters News Agency. Um, both ITN and the BBC turned me down. I went to Reuters as a graduate trainee. From them, I went to the BBC and from then to ITN. It's what I've always wanted to do. I've never, I mean, well, okay, let, let me put it this way. For every story that demands courage, there are a dozen two dozen, three dozen that you cover standing outside the door in the pouring rain, hoping the person you want will come out and it couldn't be more boring. So it's not all like that, but those are the ones you remember. I was always with a camera crew and, you know, they were always vastly experienced, the ITN camera crews, and they would help me. They would give me advice. It's just, I don't know, courage is, I, I look back on it now and I did some, fairly foolish things as an ITM reporter, you know, boys own kind of stuff that you look back on and think, oh, I nearly got three of us killed in Afghanistan in 1980. It was when the, during the Soviet occupation, you just want to get that story. But I have to say that the reporters who have followed me in television news do have courage. I think of people like, well, Martin Bell, who was shot, I think in, in Kosovo, took a bullet in the stomach. Um, and other people, uh, other reporters, we lost, ITN lost a reporter, Terry Lloyd, um, in Iraq. Iraq. Yeah. I mean, he lost it. He was killed. So what I did is nothing compared to what they do. And also, since my day, reporters and camera crews have become targets. They weren't really in my day. We was, they, there was still a certain amount of respect. Oh, you know, he's not one of us. He's from a foreign blah, blah, blah. Um, but today they are targets. And it's well known that, a, you know, an ENG camera, video camera on, on a cameraman's shoulder at a distance can look like a ground to air missile launcher. So they have become targets. So what they do is far more courageous than anything I ever did. Um, and I only I did it for 10 years. Then I was pulled off the road to become a newscaster, an anchor. So I, I wouldn't like to exaggerate what I did. But was there not a mo was there not that moment when your editor would say, "John, I'm sending you off to war"? Did, did yeah. you feel that in your gut? Yeah, very much. Um, on on that ship, on that ferry, but also I remember when when the Soviet Soviet army occupied Afghanistan. I was in, I think I was in Delhi because you you the only way you could get into in the early days of the occupation was to fly to. Uh, from Delhi to Kabul. Then they shut that airport. And I went in three more times dressed as a Mujahideen with the crew, climbing a mountain down into Afghanistan. I remember the editor of ITN, David Nicholas, sent me a letter. This is pre-computers and internet and what have you, uh, with a cameraman who came out to join me, had a letter for me from David, which I've kept actually saying, don't take any unnecessary risks, take care of yourself and the camera crew, you know, we want you to come home safely. And you, you look at it and, you know, you're young, you're impetuous and you think you'll survive anything. And luckily I did. But looking back on it. <laughs> John, of all the things that you have done in your broadcasting career, what do you think has given you the greatest pleasure? Or do you see it as a tapestry that you and you wouldn't have wanted to miss out any, any of the squares on the tapestry? That. That is a perfect way of summing it up, Matt. I've never thought of it like that. But yes, it is a tapestry. And I've, okay, I can make it sound impressive. I have interviewed presidents, prime ministers, uh, politicians, Olympics gold medal winners, Oscar winners in Hollywood, you know. But along with those, there comes a lot of dull stuff as well. But looking back on it, it is a tapestry of what I did. I was always a general news reporter. There were those who wanted to be a political correspondent, economic correspondent, business correspondent, sports correspondent. I never wanted a label. I wanted to be a fireman in quote quotation marks, which is the, the word we use for reporter, a fire, a metaphorical fire breaks out somewhere. You go, you cover it, you come back again. Having said all that, there is one thing I will say in 1961, when I was coming to the end of my school career, 
a concrete wall was built across a thriving European capital city. And I looked, and I remember seeing that on the television news in black and white, and guards with machine guns to stop people in Berlin crossing a wall. How ridiculous, that's absurd. That wall will come down and it will come down within a year. Well, I was right about the first part. I was wrong about the second by about 28 years, but it did finally come down. And all through my reporting career, Berlin and the whole of Eastern Europe was closed to me. I couldn't get into any of those countries. I tried to get into Poland to cover solidarity in 1980, 79 or 80. I was arrested twice and thrown out. You can now fly to any city in Poland from Stansted Airport with no visas. So that had to end. But in 1989, when I was no longer a reporter, I was now a full-time newscaster, the Berlin Wall fell. And I was asked to go with the ITN team to Berlin to report from Berlin and present my programme, which then was the lunchtime news from Berlin. So I remember standing at the wall, doing it into camera, as behind me, young Berliners were hacking away at the wall like this, and no one was shooting them with machine guns. And I didn't into camera saying, you know, this wall went up, blah, blah, blah. And the following day, I presented the lunchtime, ITN lunchtime news from the east side of the Brandenburg Gate. Something that would have had me machine gunned to death if the Soviet Union had still been in charge. And when I was at the wall, I picked up a fragment of the wall with a bit of graffiti on it. I've had it mounted and it's standing in my sitting room to this day. So if you want to talk of highlights, a childhood ambition to see that wall come down. Finally, it was achieved and I was there to witness it. <laughs> Incredible. And, and what a symbol of yeah. freedom that freedom. was and of human spirit. Yes. And, you know, when I presented the lunchtime news from the east side, had my camera crew with one of our senior technicians and he was holding a, a sort of a long pole type thing and he was aiming it at the satellite that was overhead in orbit, beaming it direct to London. Now, that today is old hat and old fashioned. At the time, it was incredible. I can imagine a Beethoven soundtrack to that whole experience. Yes, yes. It's Two more questions before we finish. Yeah. Penultimately, just tell us what it was like growing up as, as a boy. You, you grew up with two brothers, one of whom, of course, is Sir, now Sir David Suchet, yes. most yes. famous probably for playing Poirot. Yes. And I've had a, the great pleasure of interviewing on stage. Mm. And what a personality he is. Just tell us what that was like growing up with brothers and, and having a brother in the public eye side yeah. by side with you as it were through your career did that did that have an impact did you sort of inspire each other on or, or was there competition did tell us a little bit about that yeah well um i'll answer the, the last part first david um peter our younger brother is nine years younger than me and so when we were growing up as teenagers i saw very little of him and very little of david as well because we all went to different schools for for various reasons but I can remember growing up with David when we were toddlers before Peter was even born. I can remember David every bloody day he had to dress up. If it was a cowboy, he was a cowboy or he was he was a he was um, a guardsman at Buckingham Palace. He was always acting out roles. And I used to get really angry. For God's sake, David, stop being so stupid. And but he was acting when he was about eight or nine years of age. So he's always done that. And I can remember him saying to dad, our dad was a surgeon. He was a, he was a gynecologist and obstetrician. And David, I can remember round the kitchen table, dad saying to David, you have got to go to university. You can't be an actor. What a life that would be. And David saying, I'm sorry, dad, I'm going to drama school. I'm going to be an actor. You've got to, anyway, in the end, dad realized that David was going to do that. And David went that way. And a lot of people in the in, in the years since have said to me, you know, do you wish you'd become an actor? Did you nearly become an actor? Uh, you and David must do such similar things. Actually, we don't. I never for one moment had an urge to become an actor. And I still don't. It's not in me to portray someone else. What I do 
if I walk out on stage to talk about Beethoven or Mozart or whoever, it's my words. I am being myself. And when I'm on television as a reporter or as a newscaster or on Classic FM radio as a presenter, I am me. I am not using anyone else's words. Now, David said to me not so long ago, you're a performer. I said, I'm not a performer. I'm a presenter because it's me. And he said, what you are doing is giving a performance. And I said, there's a bit of truth in that, but I do not regard myself as a performer in the way that he is. He invests himself in another character. And we joke and we laugh about how often people say that to us, but actually we consider ourselves to do two entirely different things. The similarities are that we're in front of a camera or in front of a microphone, but there it ends. But is it a coincidence then that you have both become such prominent public figures or was there something in the water when you were growing up? That's a good question. Um, As I said, dad was a doctor. Sadly, the medical gene didn't happen to any Peter, David or me. And to this day, Manula will tell you, I'm obsessed with the medical programmes on television, watching operations, um, watching GPs. And I wish the medical gene had been in me because dad could have passed on so much knowledge. But I knew from the earliest age it wasn't. So I wasn't to be a doctor. David didn't become a doctor. Peter didn't become a doctor. And so far, none of the grandchildren of any of us are showing any medical interest whatsoever. However, on mum's side, mum's parents, our grandparents, Elsie, our grandmother, was an actress. Jimmy, James, James Jarche was a press photographer. So David has followed Elsie. I followed Jimmy. So the genes on mum's side must be a lot stronger than the genes on dad's side. That's all I can say. (laughs) Your dad came from South Africa, didn't he? Yes, he was born in South Africa. Um, He was born in South Africa of parents who his dad came from Lithuania. His mum came from Germany. And they came down to South Africa at roughly the turn of the last century to escape the, the, the Jewish pogroms in Eastern Europe. And dad's side is fully of Jewish blood, although we've never followed any religion whatsoever. But the blood on my dad's side is 100% Jewish. Mum's parents, Jimmy, the press photographer, his parents came from Russia, Jewish again, settled in Paris, then settled in London. And Jimmy is an East End boy. He was born in Rotherhithe um, in London. And he married Elsie, who was of Kentish descent, 100% English from generations back. So bit of a bit of a mixture. But dad was born in South Africa, but then came to London as a medical student in the 30s, qualified in London and met mum, a London girl, and we've been in London ever since. So final question. This is going to have to mix a couple because I've, I've run out. But yeah. I, I wanted to get a sense of what you what, what you love to do outside of family, outside of work and outside of music. And, you know, whether you have any passions we might not know about. But I'm going to weave into this and ask you whether you would ever listen to Johann Strauss, you know, for a passing pleasure rather than to study or to sort of sit seriously listening. And the reason I ask that, and this is the cheat to get the squeezes other question in, is because, as you know, my great-great-great-uncle, by marriage, but still my great-great-great-uncle, was Johann Strauss, the composer of the Blue Danube Waltz. You yourself have done a sort of series, haven't you, on Johann Strauss for Classic FM, and you still do series yes. for Classic FM. And Johann Strauss, and I may be getting this wrong, and that's silly of me, but I believe that he used to babysit my grandmother Hades' father Hans and that he composed a little waltz for my great-grandfather. And if I've got that wrong, it's still going to end up in the podcast, but it's something like that. And he was, of course, a wonderful composer, not nowhere near the greatness of Beethoven, but there's definitely a place for him. And I wonder whether you listen to Strauss as part of your sort of, not daily life, but as part of the the fun of life. Well, let me tell you something. Um, Let me start with the early part of your question, what other interests and passions? None. Journalism was my career 
classical music, in particular Beethoven, is my passion. And I was up this morning at five o'clock editing my new book on Beethoven. That is how I pass my time. Nula shares a love of classical music. We go to concerts, we go to opera a lot. That is our joint passion, if you like. To come to the last part of your question, Matt, and I know about your connection to Strauss, and that is not why I'm about to tell you what I'm about to tell you. I did a series between Christmas and New Year, just gone, for Classic FM, called The Story of Strauss. And in it, I said, Beethoven is my musical passion. If I'm not listening to Beethoven, it's a toss-up between my two other favourite composers, Richard Wagner and Johann Strauss. And that's not as contradictory as it might sound. Wagner admired Strauss. Strauss admired Wagner. Wagner conducted Strauss when, for his 53rd birthday, I think it was, he ordered his orchestra with his own conductor to perform a concert for him. He sat with his wife in the front row at his home, Cosima, and he said, you will play Strauss waltzes and nothing else but Strauss waltzes. And when it reached, I don't know what number in the in the concert, third, fourth or fifth, it was Wein, Weib und Gesang, Wine, Woman and Song. Wagner leapt up, seized the baton from the conductor's hand and conducted it himself. Strauss wrote a waltz for Brahms, who was his good friend, and he called it Zeit umschlungen Millionen which, as you know, is from the Schiller Ode to Joy, which is in Beethoven's Ninth. Strauss, I listened to, well, Beethoven I listened to first and foremost. If I'm in a mood like this and I, I need something like that, I will listen to Wagner. If I want to relax, I will listen to Strauss. And I rate Strauss very highly indeed. And his music, I will listen to out of, I was listening to it the other day, just because I wanted some wonderful melodies. He was a great orchestrator and he was admired by other great composers. Liszt, Wagner, uh, who's it? Um, Berlioz admired him enormously. Strauss, people dismiss him sometimes as just being a tune writer. He was a brilliant composer. Wonderful. I've written a whole book about him, for God's sake. I love his music. Just to finish, and this isn't a question, but because we were talking about where Beethoven was premiered, I should also add that my grandfather, who I mentioned earlier, he premiered, I believe, the Webern Variations in pre-war Berlin. And I discovered recently, I think, premiered Schoenberg on an occasion. So he was he was, a, yes. he was a, 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 an impressive concert pianist and his picture still hangs above that of Kathleen Ferrier I think in the Wigmore Hall as oh, a, pro a program of music because they have they, they framed some old programs from many many years ago so for me to get to interview you John is, is such a pleasure given oh. my own my own connections to music but above all because your passion comes through so wonderfully and it, it, and it's a great privilege to, to have a conversation with you. Thank you for answering my 20 questions. Well, thank you, man. It's been a real pleasure. I mean, I, you know, I could keep talking for hours on this. I just love it so much. It's been a great joy for you to bring out all these elements from me. So thank you so, so much.